Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Welcome to the Black Letter Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about estate planning for businesses, business owners, um, estate litigation, and how to deal with all of that stuff. What are business owners missing? What are CEOs and executives not doing? They're paying attention to their business, but often they're not paying attention to their personal finances and planning for the future. And then they retire and taxes like crazy, or they pass away and things aren't ready. Um, and that's what Rhonda Miller and Sarah Aviles joining me here today at the Black Letter Podcast are here to talk about. Sarah is an attorney. She's been practicing six years, estate, probate, asset valuation, and estate litigation. And Rhonda has been practicing 22 years, estate planning, trust, complex tax stuff, planning transitions, and uh, dealing with big life events for successful executives and business owners like IPOs or big cash events. How do you deal with tax consequences of those before they happen? So, Without going into a whole lot more detail about them, I'll let them talk about them. Uh, and Rhonda practices both in the D.C. metro area and in California. National practice in the United States and Sarah's principally in the D.C. metro area. Sarah, why don't we start with you uh, this morning as the, as the junior person, right? I understand that you have done a lot of work with uh, businesses and valuations and probate. And so I think probate is the, we can wrap our heads around that a little more. Probate is what happens when somebody dies and they haven't put stuff in a trust and you've got to deal with uh, a bunch of junk because they haven't planned properly. Yes, yes. Have you, you've run into that before? Oh, all the time. All right. Well, so I tell mean, us, tell us a little, little bit about that. So one of the issues is you get people who either they don't plan at all and they die a lot earlier than they thought they would. No one, no one ever expects to die, and sometimes, you know, you never know when the bus is coming, as it were. So probate essentially occurs if you pass away and you have an asset that's just in your individual name, meaning right. it's not a joint asset, and there's no beneficiary designation. Okay. So one of the ways and one of the key ways that we like to avoid that is by doing something called a revocable living trust. Um, it gets around that whole uh, nightmare of probate. Well, why is probate a nightmare? So, so does it um, cost more? Do you lose? Like, what happens? What so, probate essentially means that you are under the jurisdiction of the court. It means that when you pass away, your executor, who's the person who manages your affairs when you pass away, they have to go to the court. They have to qualify as executor. They pay some court fees. Mm -hmm. They pay a probate tax. Mm -hmm. And then they are under the uh, jurisdiction of someone called the commissioner of accounts okay. until that estate is wrapped up. So that is a... Uh, I've seen... I mean, I've seen probates that are 17 years old, but that's, that's a nightmare. Usually it's, you know, one to three years, just on average. So instead of getting... Your heirs getting the assets right away mm -hmm. takes one to three years. 
you're yes. paying some taxes. Mm-hmm. So and you're paying fees as well. You're and paying fees the to the commissioner a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand if they have a lot of assets. Just to look at time. your stuff, mm-hmm. right? And so you, there, is there any need to have probate? Is there any value for a probate? I would say the only value, and it's a very limited value, is the fact that there is someone looking over your accounts. I think that's a negligible value, you know, having the, the commissioner there to oversee the accounts, you know, some people. So if I die, having the commissioner look at my accounts before my wife gets all of them and charging <laughs> me to do that, yes. not a lot of value. And, so and how do you avoid probate? Well, there's ways around it. So, for example... I get a lot of people who come to me and they have minor children, for example. And one of the reasons why I don't like them to go through probate is one, the cost to the administration uh, cost in terms of time. It takes a lot of time. It's a a huge headache. And the people who most people want to handle this tend to be relatives. They tend to be non-lawyers, non-accountants who have never had to do an accounting. Some of them don't know what accountings are. Some of them don't know how to handle money. Um, so they're not excited about it. They are not. And, yeah, and yeah, when, I get to do probate. I get to be a, um, an executor. <laughs> That's not what people want to do. And I, I get a lot of people who come to me after maybe a couple months or a year has gone by and they've dug themselves into sort of a well where they're getting letters from the commissioner, letters from the court, um, have people get summonses because they didn't think that the dates, the deadlines were serious. And Because um, the guy's dead or the girl's dead, yes. right? They're thinking, ah, they're dead. They're not going anywhere. Uh, I mean, I had a couple of people uh, a couple of weeks ago who called and said, we need to get a hold of the assets. Can I just go down to the bank and show them the will? No, unfortunately, you've got to get an appointment with the court. That's a, you know, weeks, weeks long process up in Northern Virginia, Fairfax, for example. You're not getting in before a month. Right. Uh, and once you do that, then you have to go through the process of gathering all the assets, keeping and to some extent, every fiduciary wants to do this. Any person who's managing money wants to do this. You want to keep really good records. Right. But the probate court, literally, they make you account for every single penny that goes in and out of that estate. Okay. If you can't find a receipt to pay yourself back for funeral, for uh, a set of clothes you bought to bury the... Yeah. So the moral of this story is avoid probate. Avoid probate. Okay. It, is, it, is not, it is not the best way to do things especially if you have minor children who you want to be able to provide for very, very quickly in the event right. of your demise. Ties up your money. And I know a lot of people, you hope and you pray that you will not pass away when you have minor children. That's, right. you know, I always tell people, this is, hopefully this will never happen to but you, but I've seen it happen. Strategy, right? I have seen it happen. So, Ron, a deeper dive, let me ask you. So, how, so I understand probate's a bad thing because right. of the time it takes and there's some cost, not a huge cost, bigger cost, estate taxes. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the risk is there and what's involved with the state taxes, is that somehow connected to probate or is it separate from probate? Do you plan for both at the same time? What, what do you, you talk to a, a executive or an owner of a, a business worth a couple million dollars and it's a, a small business. Um, what do you tell them? So estate taxes are due nine months from the date of death. Okay. Um, and you can get an extension. Mm-hmm. for another six months. But if you do not pay the estate tax nine months with the date of death, you can pay interest right. on the estate tax. And so when you're going through the probate process, the probate process takes as long as it's going to take. And when you have a business that's going through the probate process, it is just making that whole process more complicated. I had a client 
Her husband was literally hit by a bus. It was ironic that Sarah to always say hit that. by a bus because that's so, what I always say. Oh, I mean, what if you do, get hit by a bus? Terrible, morbid sense of humor. Hit by a bus, but her husband was literally hit yeah. by a bus, and he was young. I mean, I hate to say he was my age because I think of myself as young, but he was young, and he was hit by the bus, and 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 they had a, a very healthy government contracting business. So who would think this would happen? They had young children, right? Um. You look at their, the documents for their company, and there was nothing in the document that said what happened if something, somebody died. To right. complicate matters further, blended family. So we have no So what documents. is a blended family? So a blended family is second marriage. You might have a child in the second marriage, but you have children from a first marriage. Gotcha. Now, we have no estate planning documents in this situation, and many people have no documents. So then the, what happens is Virginia has the statute. Because if you don't say what you want to have happen to your documents, there's going to be a statute that's going to say what happens in to every your state, assets. Right. In every state. And it's actually all the same. Okay. Every state is the same? Every state is the same. So if you have a blended family, mm -hmm. one third goes to your spouse, two thirds goes to your children. So now we have this very successful business. One third is going to the spouse. Current spouse. The current spouse. And she was working in the business. And two thirds and now owned by his prior children from another marriage. One third was going to their children of their marriage, who was a very small child. And then the other two thirds were going to his adult children who didn't even have anything to do with the business. Oh boy. Yeah. This is a mess. Yeah. And we have a state tax due. How do you sell a business that's splintered like this? Oh, my goodness. Um, the truth of the matter is no buyer wants to purchase a business unless everybody wants to sell. So how did you resolve it? Well, we wound up having to have a court hearing so we mm -hmm. could get everybody on the same page. They were very happy for the surviving spouse to pay all, send, you know, sell all of her assets that she got to pay the tax bill. Okay. They didn't want to pay anything with their tax bill. They just wanted their shares of dad's company. And so we said, no, everything had to be prorated. The yeah, company course. has to go. Yeah. And we wound up spending a lot of money going to hearings and having basically a judgment come down and say, okay, the company has to be sold as a whole. It's the largest asset. We need to pay the tax bill. Right. But we didn't get it done in nine months. So what happened then? Penalties, I guess? So it's not that you pay a penalty. You uh -huh. can file, you file an extension and you don't get a penalty to file the extension. You just have to pay interest. Oh, I see. So it causes the estate tax bill to, to go be up. higher. I gotcha. So hot topics, uh, things that I, you've mentioned to me, I know there's something called 199A, which is sort of new and you've written a lot about it and you've given speeches and seminars about it. Um, it, all over the country, California or here. But tell me a little bit, what is 199A? How does it help business owners? So 199A is a new tax rule that came out of C CTJA. What is CTJA? So that is um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, okay. um, which is the law that passed at the tail end of 2017. I try to pretend that it didn't happen in 2017 because I'm not a fan of the new law. Okay. So. 199 cap a is supposed to be a help 
for business owners, small business owners, by allowing them to take a 20% tax deduction on their adjusted net income okay. for their business. So this is great. This is after you've made all of your tax deductions and you have maybe two or $300,000 left of income, if you qualify, you can take another 20% deduction and then you pay less taxes. But there's a lot of rules and regulations on qualifying for it. So what's the basic scheme for qualifying? What are the basic kind of like four or five bullet points you have to have? So the first four or five bullet points are a lot of regulations on what they call specified service businesses. Okay. So everybody sitting at this table would fall under that because we're all lawyers. Lawyers can't get it. Lawyers can get it, but we're very limited on the amount of income, I see. W-2 income that we earn. Okay. And you really need to li read the list of specified service businesses. Now, specified service businesses, then you have just service businesses. Mm -hmm. And what is a service business? And a lot of people provide services in their business. Right. Then you have people who make things. People who make things are actually in the catbird seats because they're in pretty good shape. Okay. Okay. So with that, you have to get a W-2 wage. Mm -hmm. um, married couple, 350 is the magic number. If you go above that, then there's all kinds of special calculations. And a single person, it's 157 of W-2 income. W income. If you're below those numbers, it's very easy to get the deduction. And if you are above those numbers, you have to start doing calculations and it starts getting taken away. Now, what if you're a partner in a, an LLC or a partnership and, um, you know, can you uh, still take that deduction if you have no W-2 income? Technically, you have Technically, partnership. No. Okay, so it's still counted as income. It's income, um, income, doesn't matter. They really it. want you to have a W-2 income. I see. So okay. it's one of the requirements for uh, okay. the 199A. And unfortunately, they also put on some extra regulations. They waited until January of this year to kind of clarify some of the places where people were like, well, we don't understand. This isn't quite clear enough. Right. Um, what are you going to decide about this, that, and the other thing? And then they waited till January of this year to make those clarifications. So then some of the advice people got from their tax preparers may not have been exactly correct. And it's not like they said, okay, we're just going to apply it to 2019. They actually made the rules retroactive for So if you had um, people come into the office and show you tax returns and you've said, oh, your tax preparer was wrong. I mean, what, what, how do you know? So I have. Okay. So that's how so you know. I have. I always ask my business clients to bring in their tax returns. And I recently had a client come in and she owns um, a business, a very successful business. And I looked at her wage income and I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, you're under the limit. And then she was telling me how she paid so much taxes this year. And of course, many of us are paying a lot of taxes this year because our personal deductions are gone. And I took a look and I'm like, oh, there's no 20% deduction. And I said, well, you didn't get the 199 cap A deduction. And she right. goes, what? I go, I don't even know what that is. And I said, okay. And I also didn't see all the forms that needed to be filled out on her tax return. So I suggested she refile. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Um, so there's another thing that's sort of hot that you mentioned to me before the show. It's called 1202. 
I don't even know what that is. So what does that do or how does that come into play for, for tax planning and who uses that? The person has to own C Corporation stock and it has to be a U.S. corporation. Okay. They have to own it for at least five years. Okay. The stock has to have been purchased for the original price. So what does that get them? If they can do this 1202 thing, if they have the meet those factors, right. C Corp, five years, original price, um, what do they get? It gets them the ability to take a $10 million oh. tax deduction for capital gains wow. when that stock is sold. Okay. So what if, it, if you own it in a limited liability partnership or an LLC, it doesn't apply? It can only be a C corporation? So there, there is the ability to convert that S corporation or that LLC to a C corporation before it's going to be sold. Okay. And then own it for that period of time. Does it have to be in C corp status though for that period? It has to be in C corp for five status years. for at least five That's years. Planning. So that is planning. That's part yeah. of the planning. And the interesting part of it is we have been doing this with a lot of our clients who are angel investors in companies. That are LLCs or something. Um, actually, sometimes they're angel investors in, an, in a C-Corp. And they're like, okay, maybe, you know, some sometimes it's biotech, sometimes it's just regular tech, and they just say, oh, I think this might really work. And then uh, the the company goes through an IPO. All of a sudden, the stock is worth a lot of money. Right. And we can go ahead and take out $10 million in capital gains. That's great. Now, before the IPO, if they own a lot of stock, we can actually do some more planning. We can take some of the stock, gift it to the wife. Mm -hmm. Also take some of the stock, gift it to the children. Okay at the original price. We're maybe talking five cents a share. Mm -hmm. And we can put them in these um, qualified small business trusts. Then the IPO goes through. Let's assume it's really successful. So mm -hmm. it's at $60 a share. Okay. And then each one of these trusts can take an additional $10 million Oh wow! deduction. So you can really maximize your capital gains deduction. You really can. So you have almost zero basis in your original stock. And then IPO, you're suddenly 60 million of gain, but by creating these other QSSTs, yes. qualified subchapter as trusts or businesses, you can get multiple $10 million deduction for whatever they are. They're, they're, what are um, they called? They're, they're qualified small businesses. Yeah, they're, um, they're QSST trusts or S Corp. Oh, that's right. Right. So, so these are are these C corps that you so set up? So they're um, or LLCs? No. They have to be C corps. Yeah, they have to be C corps. But so but these ones you've created aren't around for five qualified. years. They don't have to be around for. So they're okay. they're actually just small business trusts. Okay. Um, and they're written a certain way, and you put the um twelve oh two language in there, mm -hmm. and then they're qualified to hold the stock, okay. and then you can do the additional. And you transfer the stock. Yes. At low value. Correct. So basically it's a gift within the right. gift exemption. So you have, or potentially, if, even if it's a little more, you may have to file a gift tax return, but normally you don't. Okay. Because it's such a de minimis gift. And it then, doesn't have to be in the trust for five years? It does not. does not. Wow. You can do it. So a, a lot of before. times if the clients come in and they know the IPO is happening, we have to sign a non-disclosure because 
IPOs are usually very quiet. Right. And we can get the planning done in a period of, we can usually get it done within six weeks or so. Okay. And then the IPO happens. Mm -hmm. The other time we can do this is if we know the client is going to sell their C corporation. Right. So, you know, we have a great M&A department. Mm -hmm. and our firm. Sure. And so this is another wonderful planning tool that we can offer those clients that own C corporations, again, before they go ahead and sell the company. We do the same thing where we gift that stock around mm -hmm. so we can either eliminate or really mitigate the capital gains. Because okay. whenever you gift something, mm -hmm. you gift it at the original basis. Right. So in terms of um, stuff you've dealt with for businesses, what's the, what's the toughest, the biggest challenge that businesses have today that they don't know they have uh, that results in a dispute or what, what, what's the most tangled, messed up thing? If you were talking to a business owner right now and said, you know what, business owner, I don't know you. I know you have a successful business and I know you don't have a plan. What's the biggest, single biggest piece of advice you'd say, but you need to look at this or you need to do this? What would you ask them for? I think the single biggest advice that I give business owners is business owners work in their business. They don't realize how valuable their business is, and mm -hmm. they often have no plan to right. pay estate tax on their business. Mm -hmm. Businesses are not always, again, something you can easily sell. And if that's where all the money is, right. they must have a plan to address the estate tax. Yep. And especially when a business is hugely successful and it continues to grow in value. So right now, for example, I have a client, he came in, his business is very successful. I suggested to him that we start gifting some of the shares of the business out of his estate to his children so we can freeze some of the value mm -hmm. um, outside of his taxable estate. So even if it continues, and it's going to continue to grow, it'll grow outside of his taxable estate. Then we have to come up with a plan to still pay estate tax because there's still going to be a taxable estate. Right. All of these years, he's seen many other lawyers. Nobody said a word to him. And, and he came in to see me for a simple estate plan. He goes, I just thought I was going to get a new will and trust. He goes, I didn't think I was going to do this type of planning with you. So, okay. Well, so what about, let's take a different turn then. What about fights? The state fights, disputes. I'm just, just to make it interesting and to get off the planning, planning side, what's the craziest estate dispute either of you have ever had? Yeah, so I don't know if you've That's a tight have. battle. Oh, is it really? So good. There's a lot so, of so Sarah, what's your craziest estate dispute oh. that you can think of? Trying to think. I mean, some of the some of the ones, some of the crazy ones actually don't even make it to litigation because it's it's just you get so dispute. Generally, what happens is a lot of parents, and I try I try and uh, deal with this pre pre death. Um, but some people sometimes you get, you know, oh, I want to name both my children as the joint trustees of this trust or the joint executors. Right. These children don't get along. They hate each other. They haven't spoken to each other in years. And then they have to they're cooperate. Just cooperating until their parents pass away and then they're going you know, to sue other. each other. Yeah. Or, or you have one child who has been made the trustee and, you know, there's several siblings. And, you know, these are people in their 50s, 60s, you, yeah. know, you would think could maybe comport themselves. But they can't. 
They can't. Yeah. Uh, you you always have the the one sibling who is unhappy with how things are going, who sues trustee sibling, who maybe is doing a great job, maybe is not doing a great job. I've had, you know, trustees, not who I've been advising, but trustees who you, you see who are are doing something wrong, and then like looting the trust. Yes, <laughs> which is the most common thing, I think. But I had a, a the funniest one is is you know I I worked with a, a lawyer who used to say that. Uh, it, it was just depressing the amount of money you make on uh, tangible fights over the tangible personal property, the clothes, the furniture, the joy, the stuff that's not worth money. It's literally the worth Christmas nothing. The Christmas ornaments. Yeah. The childhood toys that that yeah. they're fighting over for for weeks and months. And Easy answer. Just take them. Yeah. <laughs> or just burn them. Can, or, can sell, you write like all my stuff will be burned at my death? Well, the thing is, is I you can't put a sale provision. I I in what the nice thing about Virginia law and probably other states as well is you can put something. Uh, you can let your uh, client write a letter that says specific items of tangible yeah. personal property go to specific people. So I tell people, look. If you've got that grandfather clock that the minute you pass away, six people are coming and they're going to get into a fist fight over yeah. it, pick someone. <laughs> and I say some, some people joke and they say, oh, they can fight over that. I'm like, well, they will. So if you have any, any qualms at all, especially blended yeah. families, um, because a lot of that, too, is after the first spouse death, uh, after the father. Because I, at least, maybe you see it, too. I tend to see the litigation over siblings who don't get along and over step parent and stepchildren. Right. So like who gets the silverware? Yeah. We've right. and, and we've no, had it's, it's, it's worse than it's that. worse. Yeah. It's it's my stepmom kept yeah. all of my dad's things. Yes. And she and stole he, his money. He, he won't give me it. And now she's spending all his money. She's taking trips around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's my money she's spending. Right. And and uh, she can't spend that money. And I'm like, well the trust says that she can't. Yeah. I've had undue influence ones too. We had a lawsuit filed because wife of 20 years, uh, husband left her the estate, which, you know, reasonable size estate. Okay. And kids were mad. They didn't think, oh, he didn't love her that much. He wouldn't have left her the money. Uh, left her everything though. Yes. And excluded yeah. his kids. And that's, that's the thing too, is this started out as, you know, they got along. Mm -hmm. They weren't, I don't think best buddies, but during lifetime, they were fine. Yeah. The minute that, he died. Client passed the away. The connection was gone. It's gone. And it, yeah. it, it's money and grief, I think. It turns into to disputes anger and, and lawsuits yeah. sometimes. Unreasonable, yeah. um, valueless anger. So, Rhonda, what about you? A lot of times families fight either when things are not clear in the document or if there is absolutely no document. So it's, it's different situations. I think the things that come to mind the most in my career are times when dad has a really successful company and he's given several shares of stock to five kids. And the company is what we would consider a great generator of cash. And maybe two of the five kids work in the business and actually are earning these large amounts of cash that are generated, but the other three kids prefer to pay, play golf all the time and maybe show up at the business once or twice a month, which is great as long as dad's alive and continuing to run the company, but then dad dies. And so suddenly there's a lot of fighting over well, I still want all these big dividends and I still am entitled to get all this money, 
But then who's going to run the company? And then the two kids that are running the company are like, well, we're not going to continue to give you all this money unless you start actually helping to run the company. And this is how families start fighting. Because when dad's estate plan, he said, I leave my estate to all five children equally. But the estate maybe encompasses more than just this one company. It may encompass a great amount of cash. It may encompass other businesses, rental properties. And it doesn't actually deal with that property, that company specifically. It doesn't say if my two children who actually are working in the company, they can buy out the other three. And so families start fighting over what's going to happen because the other three entitled children think that they should just get to have something for free because they always have in their entire life. And that's a problem. Other times, families just fight because there's this picture that means something to everyone and nobody said who the picture was going to go to or the ring that mom always wore and mom promised it to me, but mom didn't say it was going to go to me. And it's all types of things that people fight over. Um, Sometimes inexplicably, dad will disinherit one child and he might do it three months before he dies. And that child is like, why didn't dad love me as much as my brothers or my sisters and my brothers? And then no one knows. And so families fight over a whole host of reasons and for a lot of different reasons. And I think that estate planning is one of the more personal types of planning. People get very hurt and it's a very emotional time when someone dies. So it's easy for families to fight over this particular thing. And the thing with our jobs is when we're doing the planning, it's important to talk to mom and dad when they're writing their documents. If they're going to disinherit a child, tell them why. If we can get them to do it, tell them why. I always tell them, if you're going to disinherit a child, at least leave them $100,000 because most lawyers will take um, a disinheritance on contingency fee, and that's usually what the lawyer's fee is if they win. So give them at least that much money so the lawyer has nothing to gain by taking the case. And the other thing is, you know, if everyone knows there's a precious possession and there's a ring that's in the family that's important, then leave that ring to someone specifically and don't be cavalier about all of these things because little things really matter. I have a client and she has a ring in the family and the ring has an important history in that family and it's supposed to go to the oldest daughter in the family and has done so from generations and generations and generations and we actually have a page and a half in her document on who gets the ring if her daughter is to die first, die before her and does not have a daughter before she dies. And so, you know, she's taking care of that, but that requires a lot of extra time and attention when you're drafting a document. And the same thing with businesses. You have to make sure you do succession planning, which why you see in many, you know, estate planning questionnaires, do you have a business? And if you have a business, who do you want it to go to? Because that's important too. You know, if you have children working in that business, 
they should have the ability to continue to work in that business as opposed to children that are just getting dividends from the business. And that really avoids family fights because you don't want your children not to talk to each other for the rest of their lives after you die. And that's a terrible thing to have and you want to avoid it. For today, from an estate planning and probate and business planning perspective, what are the three major things between the two of you guys that every business owner uh, or wealthy individual or somebody who's thinking about taking care of their estate plan? I mean, maybe they have one already, but and should they look at it? But what are the three major things, if you could bullet point them, that are the three big takeaways for today? Yeah, for today. <laughs> Get in early, I would say. Get I'll, in early. So I think that people need to understand that all businesses mm -hmm. Um, will go through probate unless you have a trust mm -hmm. and the business has been assigned to the trust. So it's not enough just to have a the trust. The ownership. Yeah. The ownership of the business, business has needs to be, assigned, to be to assigned to the trust. Yeah. Um, had someone who had that issue. Correct. Had a so, trust, didn't have it assigned. So um, ownership of the business assigned to the trust or the business has some buyout provision that has automatically a, has a buyout agreement or there's something written inside the business provides that provides what transition. happens for a transition. Yep. And unfortunately, most documents, when we read operating agreements or we look at, um, you know, any kind of corporate documents, they don't have. Focus on the here and now yeah, and not focus, on the tomorrow. Right. Which yeah. is optimistic, but right. naive, right? In some ways. So, so that's takeaway one is... Remember the transition. Look at your business right. transition. The other thing that people do is that when they start a business with someone else, they do a buy-sell agreement. But sometimes they lock in the value of the, um, the company at the initial value. Okay. So they might say, we both have million-dollar life insurance policies. If I die, my spouse or my children get a million dollars. Maybe the company is worth $40 million now. Right. And they don't realize they need to take another look at that buy-sell agreement. Buy-sell agreements should never, ever have a hard and fast value. should always be some kind of market valuation. Correct. Fair FMV, fair market value right. kind of thing. We, so, oh, I was going to say, we, we also just uh, uh, settled litigation where the, buy, uh, the operating agreement had very strict provisions on who can get the property. And when she did her planning, the attorney must not have looked at... Who, how it could go, and, and there's years. It's been years of litigation on oh, that. Gosh. So that's in the sort of tying into that is is you need an attorney who knows to look at the documents. You can't just write the TOD, transfer it into the the trust, and hope it all goes well. You have to know what you can and can't do because most right. of the time, it, I, you know, I don't see it a lot in the documents. But if it does, you have to pay attention. <laughs> so, so I think that that kind of wraps into one takeaway. So look at your current documents. And, and planning. So, so review what you have, whether it's a buy, sell, your operating agreement, your shareholders agreement, how does that business get transitioned and plan for that? So that's, that's a huge takeaway. It sounds like the second takeaway is kind of what you were saying earlier, Sarah and Rhonda, both, you were saying that you need to think about your family and who the people are that are involved, right? So the siblings fighting over the grandfather clock, plan ahead for people's problems. Don't assume they'll work it out. Um, Especially with a business. But you also need to make sure, and Sarah's absolutely correct, does your estate planning document reflect what's in the operating agreement or what's in the buy-sell agreement? You can't write something different in right. your estate plan that's in the actual document. Also, parents 
often assume their children want to work in their business. Um, That doesn't always happen. Sometimes children have absolutely no interest in what we do. I would love to think either one of my children want to be a lawyer, but neither one do. (laughs) They just don't have any interest. So you need to know that. And Mm -hmm. so if you want to pass down your business that you've worked so hard in, um, be realistic and you just may not be able to. So you have to have um, a plan of what you're going to do with your business. And I had a a really great mentor that said, the day you need to start planning of how to get out of your business is the day you start right. your business. Fair point. And I do think that that's a very true statement. It's a difficult thing to remember, but you need an exit plan when you, when you start. So, so the three things I now have are um, review your documents all the time, make sure they match, make sure your ducks are in a row in the document world in terms of your business structure and who gets what. Second, plan for the people that are getting it. And I think it ties to your third point, which is don't assume uh, anything with your children. You need to plan for a variety of contingencies. Your children may not want your business, your successor, your wife may not want to run your they business. They may not be qualified. May too. not be qualified, right. right? If your children aren't qualified lawyers, they couldn't run, right. take your clients and be a law business. Have so. issues, something happens, and yeah. you have to plan for that. And- I mean, it's, it's just such an interesting situation, you know, e- even if it's not, you know, a professional business, sometimes it's government contracting. Right. The reason why the person is successful is the contacts they got over mm-hmm. the years when they were in the military. Right. They want their child to come in, but the child wasn't in the military. It doesn't have the They can't contact. maintain the contacts. They can't yeah. maintain the contacts. And, and I think that you know, that's a very hard business to yeah. plan a successor, but not a hard business to sell. Right. And so I just think that having a succession plan in place is incredibly a realistic succession plan, I should say. Mm-hmm. Very, <laughs> very important. Okay. Um, because the worst thing that you could do is have somebody unqualified run your business for two years, reduce the value of the business, and then try to sell it. Yeah. Right. So, and especially if you're caring for people with so that talking to Sarah and Rhonda about these issues is probably the first step. Yeah. Bring your tax returns. Come talk <laughs> to the team. Um, so, well, thanks guys for coming on. I think it was great. I appreciate the time you spent and took. Thanks for joining us for this Black Letter episode. Uh, download us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Look forward to seeing you next time on Black Letter. Thanks. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com. 